It's now a real pleasure to uh, present Rabbi Ziegler. Uh, we've been waiting for a long time uh, for this. It's, it's, it's such a precious and special moment. You've done an extraordinary work. You have contributed in an extraordinary measure to the uh, perpetuation of the life and the teachings of Rabbi Salafajic. We are all in your debt. Uh, we thank you very, very much. The pleasure to present Rabbi Rubensky. some themes that uh, the previous speakers mentioned, uh, particularly concerning perpetuating the Rav's uh, legacy and uh, the way I think uh, would be most appropriate to go about that. But first, the, one of the things that the Rav taught us is uh, about the, uh, the how Kara Satov is really a cornerstone of, of religious life and of uh, moral life in general, and therefore I wanted to just uh, reiterate some of the thanks that were said before and to uh, add some of my own. First, I want to thank uh, the panelists. Uh, not just uh, for agreeing to be here tonight. Uh, Rabbi Schachter shepherded this project from its very beginning uh, many years ago at every stage, and uh, the book would not have come out without him, and I appreciate it very much. And uh, Dr. Schatz, uh, we've been in voluminous uh, email correspondence over the past decade or so, and uh, I've gained much from it and collaborated on many projects, and I, I thank him for taking on a junior partner and uh, helping me... Uh, Enter into this uh, world of uh, research and, and Jewish thought, and Rabbi Rabbi Rosenzweig. There's, I mean, what can I say other than that? I thank him for being Rabbi Rabbi and for for really embodying for me the Rabbi's ideas uh, in a very concrete way. Uh, I also want to thank all the speakers for uh, agreeing to read the words that my mother wrote uh, so so accurately, um, and uh, just the words of praise. The ideas were yours. For the book. And I want to uh, thank, of course, the, the family of uh, Abraham Lubavitz, uh, who uh, sponsored this book, the Rabbi Soloveitchik Institute, uh, the publishers, Kareem and Maimonides and OU, Yeshivat uh, Haratzion, my, my spiritual home and uh, my physical home nearby. Uh, and I'm very happy to be back at my alma mater, where you are. I spent uh, many years of my youth, uh, many very precious years. Um, a few weeks ago, the book came out in Israel. It's just reaching America now, today, I think. Um, and we made uh, the book arrived on a Friday, and, and my wife basically arranged a little kiddush. And uh, so I spoke. I think that people were surprised the next morning when I uh, when I gave some brief remarks. I started by quoting a conversation I had with the Breslover Hussein, which uh, seemed to have nothing to do with the rub. Uh, and uh, this fellow. Uh, told me a very interesting story. He was in Berkeley in the 60s, not from, dropped out of college, was living in a redwood forest, and uh, not, not exactly the lifestyle of a Gothic man. And uh, one day, he uh, went into San Francisco and he saw a place called the House of Love and Prayer, which was the shul of Shalom Karlovak. And he thought, it looks like an interesting place. He walked in and he heard Shalom Karlovak giving a shear on Rav Nachman. And he said, I didn't understand why there was anyone else in the room. Because clearly Rav Nachman was talking to me personally. And, and uh, today this fellow is uh, the leading scholar of Breslau music and uh, has a beautiful family and uh, is a scholar and propagator of the traditions of Breslau. Um, 
And I had a very uh, similar experience. I wasn't living in a redwood forest, but I was uh, I was here uh, at MTA in high school. Uh, and when I first read the rub, and it spoke to me in such a direct and personal way, exactly the issues, the problems, the dilemmas, the tensions, I. I, I it was as if he was writing it for me, not that I was the last man, but I felt that, that the works really spoke to me. They were directed at me personally. And uh, I continue to feel this, that the rub is speaking to me. Uh, although what spoke to me at the age of 16, I might, uh, different parts of the rub's writings might, might speak to me more now, as would be natural. Um, but uh, this powerful experience is really something that I, that I carry along with me, and therefore it was... It was uh, a tremendous fuss when I, when I uh, came into possession of uh, hundreds of the Rose manuscripts uh, later in, in life uh, through Rev. Uh, Lichtenstein and then through the Tversky family. Uh, and I had the opportunity, along with uh, Dr. Schatz and Dr. Wolowelski and others, to uh, publish uh, some of these, to bring them uh, to the attention of the greater world. So I felt that, uh, that this, you know, that, that the when the, the way the rub had spoken to me personally and had helped me and had helped shape me, even though I didn't know him personally, I, I had my first year in YU was his last year. I, mean, I hope there's no causal relationship there, but it was a coincidence. And, uh, and so I had the, the privilege of beholding him, like the Gemara says, Chazise Menachore, but, uh, but I was never exposed to him directly. Uh, but I feel that he is my Rebbe, and I've uh, sat and had Chavrusa with him every morning for the past decade, uh, reading his, uh, listening to his tapes, reading his manuscripts. Um, and this past Shabbos, I was in the Rub's hometown, I was in my Maimonides school, and I spoke there about what uh, the community in Israel can learn from the Rub, and is learning the Rub, and why his influence there is growing. And I spoke about what, uh, in general, we today can and should uh, learn from the Rav again, uh, even though I wrote an entire book on the Rav and, and uh, even though I, I devote myself professionally to perpetuating and spreading his legacy I think it's important to point out that the Rav wanted us to be his Talmidim and not to be his Hasidim uh, he used to say Hamidu Talmidim Harbet meaning the way he interpreted it was make your Talmidim stand up on their own two feet they should think for themselves. They should have their own ideas. Um, and he would be the first to admit that if his thought uh, doesn't speak to you, he says this in Lonely Man of Faith and other writings. He said, these are my personal interpretations. This is my subjective understanding of Judaism. Uh, everyone's understanding of Judaism is subjective. But he says, these are my, this is how I understand it. If this resonates with my audience, and if not, then you should feel free to find a different approach within the framework of halakha that resonates with you personally, or that resonates with your community, with your own individual issues. Uh, I think that the Rav uh, would want us to, to uh, read his writings and to read his thoughts just like we should read his shiur with a critical eye, um, to feel free to disagree, to draw different conclusions, to conclude that uh, his ideas were more applicable in a different time and today because things have changed maybe we need different emphases uh, different insights Um, and I think it's important that as much as we're all concerned with perpetuating the Rub's legacy and I believe uh, that it has tremendous value and and that these 
books that uh, we produced with Dr. Schatz and, and others, these are really Nitzit Son Barzel of Am Yisrael, and, and as the uh, Reform Rabbi said, uh, some of these books it will be read, uh, I think, in a thousand years. Uh, nevertheless, his we today, especially those who live in his orbit, especially those in Yeshiva University or in his greater community, the modern Orthodox community, the religious science community, we shouldn't feel stifled by this thought. We should feel that his thought should be an inspiration to us and a source for our own creativity. Um, as we know, the Rav, one of the, uh, the way he had a very unique interpretation of the Halakha Bidracha, uh, where he said that one of the corner, deep cornerstone, he said several times of Judaism, is to imitate God. The way it's usually understood is Mahurahu Mahatarahu. He's merciful, we should be merciful, he does chesed, we should do chesed. The Rav said, no. The, the primary way that we have to imitate God is just as God is creative, so too should we be creative. God is a, is a creator of worlds, we should be creators of worlds. And I think that this is the way he would want us to learn his writings and to apply his writings and his thoughts. Uh, and just briefly, let's let's look at, uh, as we mentioned before, his, his one of his greatest Talmudim, certainly someone who's his Talmudim, that he's someone who is tremendously influenced by the Rav, shaped by the Rav, and sees himself as personally committed to perpetuating the Rav's life. <coughs> Yet, he's not the Rav, and he doesn't, uh, he, sometimes he takes the Rav's ideas and applies them to new areas that the Rav didn't. Sometimes he takes the Rav's ideas and draws different conclusions than the Rav himself did. Some of his ideas are completely independent of things that the Rav may have said. And I'll just give very, very brief examples. And, you know, Mahua Anachnu, such a Talmud Muha uh, can can it, it's, it's, my my brother-in-law learned in Yeshiva Sabrisk in Yerushalayim and he said that the goal in Yeshiva was to say over Torahs of, of the Griz on Kodshim that's all not to come up with your own Kedushim but to learn what Rebel said on Kodshim and to be able to pass it on and I think that uh, the Rav uh, had a very different approach than this uh, as exemplified I think that that uh, Rav Lichtenstein because he's a Talmud of, of the Rav, feels that though he works within the orbit of the Rav, he should also be free to develop his own individual approach and, and uh, feel free to disagree when, when, when the occasion is demanded. It's like uh, Rav Amital said on many occasions, he said that he really was shaped by Rav Kook, and Rav Kook is what kept him going through the Shoah, brought with him to the, he brought a little pamphlet of Rav Kook's writings with him to the Nazi labor camp. He said, that's what kept him going. He said, yet because I'm a Talmud of Rav Kook, I think that I must disagree with Rav Kook on certain things. Because Rav Kook lived before the Shoah. He didn't see the Shoah. He lived before me in Israel. He never saw it. And I saw things that he didn't, and therefore, because I'm his Talmud, I have to disagree. Um, and I'll just give a couple of short examples before uh, moving on to one or two other uh, issues in the Rav's thought. Um, the... Keep it brief. I'll just stick to the end of, the, of this. Um, the the rub, everyone knows, uh, started off in Aguda and switched to Mizrahi uh, because he felt that Yad Hashem was apparent in the creation of Medinat Israel, and uh, he felt that uh, cornerstone of his thought was human activism and the need for humans to build and develop and create. And he felt that Kadosh Baruch Hu had paskin in the machloket between Aguda and Mizrahi, that Mizrahi was correct. Uh, and therefore he felt it was very important to be supportive of Medina Yisrael, 
and to love Medina Israel, to be concerned about Medina Israel, to help Medina Israel. Uh, Lichtenstein certainly took all these, but he drew a different conclusion. He felt that the, the conclusion from this is that we should make aliyah to Medina Israel, and that we should work from the inside to shape it, not to support it from the outside, but to be, to, to be a Rosh Hashivat is there, uh, and to, to help shape Israeli society from the inside. And moreover, he, he also uh, said that it's not just that there's Yad Hashem in the creation of the Medina. He saw other valleys in Medina Israel which the Rav didn't develop. Uh, he felt that there was an organic quality to religious life in Eretz Israel, and, and that Jewish life in diaspora was more fragmented. When you go to work, you're at work. When you go to, to school, you're in school. And when you're in shul, you're in shul. But he felt that all of society in Israel had, had a unique organic quality. He felt that without going into mysticism, but the Kedushas Haaretz lends a different quality to Kiyom HaMitzvot in Eretz Israel. He felt that uh, Israel is is and is the epicenter of Jewish life, even though there's Eretz Israel and Babel, and Babel is important. And he doesn't want to negate the value of uh, diaspora communities, unlike uh, other religious science thinkers. But still, the, the center of uh, the Jewish people, the center of Kahal Israel, is an Eretz Israel. And for all these reasons, and for others, he felt that uh, despite the fact that he had imbibed his uh, religious Zionism from the Rav, uh, he drew a different conclusion than the Rav drew. Um, another issue um, is it's well known that uh, Rav Lichtenstein uh, thinks that there's great religious and spiritual value to the study of literature. And uh, Rav Soloveitchik appreciated literature, but he, when he was looking for spiritual sustenance to be found outside the world of Torah, he found it in the world of science, in the world of philosophy, in the world of theology. Uh, and he constantly, Rav Lichtenstein has said that the Rav continually urged him to study more science and study more mathematics and he would see the beauty of it and the greatness of it. And Rav Lichtenstein said when he was in college, he, he took courses in math and science, not because the Rav told him to, but because he said, if he sees something in it, then I want to take it and see what he sees in it. And he didn't really see what the Rav saw in it, but he did see it in literature. And then after he got his PhD in literature, the Rav made him a party. And then the Rav said, Mazel Tov, I'm your doctor in literature, and now that you got literature out of your system, now you study some science. So, um, and Rav uh, felt free to develop his own approach and to develop his own ideas, and he's devoted uh, many essays. Uh, the, the Rav, by the way, as Dr. Schatz pointed out in an essay of his, the Rav never, never wrote a programmatic essay, Why I Believe in the Study of Philosophy. Uh, Rav Lichtenstein has written several essays uh, why I believe in the study of literature. So we can see he sets out exactly what he thinks there is to be gained from it. Uh, his most, uh, most uh, in-depth treatment of it is in a book that the Rabbi Schachter edited, uh, uh, Judaism's Encounter with Other Cultures. Uh, and there I, I think that you can't uh, ask for a, more, for a more thorough treatment of the issue than, than that which Rav Lichtenstein has there. Um, so I think that uh, this approach of Rav Lichtenstein can be a model for those who appreciate the Rav's philosophy, who identify with the Rav's philosophy, but nevertheless should feel free to develop their own approach and to take the Rav's ideas in different directions than the Rav might have been willing to do himself. Um, and the Rav himself was, as I said, the Rav himself did not want people to do things because he did them or to believe things because he believed them. He wanted people to listen, understand, weigh it, and uh, and continue from there. And if if they were convinced, then they should should 
uh, follow his path. Uh, and in a uh, in, in one of the next, I'll give you a preview of uh, not the next volume of the road that's coming out. There's one that's going to come out in another two months or so. It's in proofreading now. But the one after that, I'll quote you a little passage from what he writes. Um, he says that uh, there's there are two uh, aspects of religious life. There's the, the halakhic framework and the framework of Jewish values. But within that, there's room for many different religious styles, many different religious approaches. Um, for example, you know, if you're keeping Tariyat Mitzvahs and you have the basic Jewish values, so who's to tell you whether to be a Hasid or a Misnagin? Which way is right? There's no correct answer to that. Or who's to tell you whether to be uh, an elitist like uh, Beishamai or a democratic approach like Beishilo? Who's to tell you whether to, to focus your Judaism on Talmud Torah or, or to focus it on Tefillah or to focus it on Chesed? In other words, as long as you're engaged in all three, but everyone will put his emphasis, each individual will put his emphasis in a different area. <coughs> the Rebbe says that, uh, and, I'll, and he says that no one can tell someone else how to be in this way. He says, because if I tell him, if I tell him what religious vow to adopt, I'm telling him to be me, but he's not me. I'm me, he's him. He has to decide for himself. That's why Talmudim of the Rav and Talmudim of Lichtenstein have the same experience. They, it could be frustrating because he wouldn't tell you what to do. People would go to him with a dilemma and say, you know, should I, uh, I don't know, take this job? Should I uh, do this? Should I do that? And he wouldn't answer. He would help you clarify the considerations in each direction. And Talmudim of Lichtenstein know this phenomenon also. Those who want him to, to make your decisions for you will be very frustrated. Uh, but he's not doing it because he's unwilling to take responsibility. He's doing it because it's illegitimate to make that decision for you. It's a decision that you have to make for yourself, and you have to take the responsibility for your own decision, and you know what's best for you better than he does. Um, so this is a theme that will come up in the um, in two books from now, in the row. I'll just put a short passage, uh, and then a final thought. Uh, the Rav writes, Each individual finds in the powerful God experience whatever appeals to him. He searches through the total span of the spectrum of religious experience. He will find that some shafts of colorful and brilliant light, notwithstanding their high moral potential, do not correspond to his innate moral being, and they are only remotely related to the needs which he considers the strongest. In a word, the selection of the basic norms of the religious experience depends upon the organization of the self. That is why there is no psakhalata in matters of religious style, of Ashtapa. That's why no controversy on these matters was resolved by the Masar in accordance with the rule of the majority, because Psakhalata would imply standardization of practices. This would contradict the very essence of Ashtapa, of uh, choosing a religious style. And now I want to make one final observation. Uh, The Rav, as is well known, was a dialectical thinker. Now, a dialectical thinker believes that there are two values that are different, maybe even opposed to each other, and yet both are important, and we have to try to grasp both. Uh, and the Rav believed that we live in the tension between the dialectical pulls in different directions. Now, that's true in the larger sense. However, uh, whenever uh, a thinker like the Rav, a dialectical thinker like the Rav, would speak to an audience, which side is he going to emphasize? He's going to emphasize the side that's weak. In, in his audience. He doesn't have to tell them if, if he believes in A and B, and they believe in A, so he'll, he'll say A and B are both important, but then he'll spend the rest of his speech talking about the importance of B. Uh, for example, here, we're in Yeshiva University today, so I, I thought this is a good example, Taro Mata. So, uh, 
the Rav and uh, the Rav, of course, uh, was the exemplar of Torah Mada. Uh, what it means, he never wrote a programmatic essay. Um, but uh, what side are you going to talk about if you believe in Torah Mada? So if you come to an audience that believes in Talmud Torah and doesn't believe in the importance of Mada, you'll spend most of your time expressing the importance of Mada because they don't need to be strengthened in their Torah study. If you come to an audience that's strong in Mada and that believes in that, but they don't see the value of Talmud Torah. You'll spend most of your time talking about the value of Torah. Uh, and the same with, with anything else. Now, the Rav, in his essays, goes through a whole series of dialectics. But he, he clearly leans in one direction uh, in each of his essays. And the question is whether, if he's emphasizing one side when he was writing 50 years ago, today... Should we be emphasizing the other side? It's important when you read the Rav's essays and you see that he's emphasizing one thing, you have to try to get the big picture and to see what's he really saying. He's really saying that A and B are important, even though 90% of this essay is about B. And maybe in our day, everyone knows B, and we have to really emphasize A. Uh, so if we want to be real Talmudim of the Rav, and if we really want to appreciate his values, we have to be willing to reassess whether the side that was weak in his day, that he felt the need to emphasize, is still is still uh, weak today. Um, I could give a couple of examples. I'll just uh, name a couple briefly, and then I'll conclude. Uh, for example, in the Lonely Man of Faith, he talks about Adam one and Adam two. Uh, Adam one, majestic, creative man, creates culture, civilization, society, all for religious reasons because he's he's answering God's call over two guards to keep Shua. On the other hand, there's Adam two. Humble man, covenantal man, sacrificial man, who is willing to limit himself to accept uh, God's tzibui, uh, to, to enter into the creed with Kashbarahu by giving up of himself. Now, he talks in the essay about how God wants us to be Adam one, Adam two. But most, of, but the second half of the essay and the whole emphasis of the essay is Adam two, because not just because Adam two is ultimately more important, which I think is the case. But still, he believes in Adam on Adam too. But when was he writing? In the 1960s. Man was reaching out for the moon. You know, they were conquering civilization, technology. Everyone knew that man's job was to conquer. And people were, were arrogant. And he was trying to, to stress that, no, religion also demands that you limit yourself, that you be humble, that you be willing to sacrifice. And that's the side that he emphasizes because that's the side that his audience needed to hear. Um, could be that in different places, different times, we might need to go back in the other direction. Uh, one theme I spoke about yesterday in Boston was about how the Rav talked about how Judaism is a discipline and a romance, and that both these aspects are essential for the self-realization of the religious personality. He, what does he mean by discipline? He says Judaism is a discipline of thought and a discipline of action. Discipline of thought is Talmud Torah and the most rigorous, analytic, brisker form that's, that's discipline of thought. Discipline of action is shmir ha-mitzvot, you know, al-kut social yud, pirte kratim of the halacha, to be mekayim the mitzvot in the most medakte possible way. So that's one aspect of Judaism, the discipline. On the other hand, Judaism, he says, is a romance. There's an inner yearning, passionate, quest, experiential aspect. And then he goes through why each side is important. If you just have the inner yearning, passionate experience, but it's not disciplined, it can, it's volatile, it can dissipate quickly, it can go off in all sorts of undesirable <coughs> directions, so it needs to be disciplined. On the other hand, if you just have the discipline without, but, but without the romance, so it's dry, it's soulless, it's meaningless. 
And he said, you need to integrate both of these aspects in your team on this book. Now, um, in his day, he really, he said, I have seen success in trying to convey the discipline of Judaism. And I think that my Talmudim know how to learn a sugya, and they've adopted the discipline of thought of Judaism. And I think that my Talmudim understand the importance of Kiyom HaMitzvot, and that they're Shomer Shabbat Kalat Hamura and Shomer Mitzvot Kalat Hamura. However, I feel that they have not succeeded in absorbing the experiential dimension of Judaism. And they're perplexed, and their, their Judaism is, is without, without emotional depth. And therefore, he devoted a lot of attention to discussing uh, in many of the works that we have put out in Family Redeemed and others, the inner experiential dimension of Judaism. Now, it could be, and here I hark back to my opening with uh, Breslov and Rufo Karlobach, it could be that today people understand the romance of Judaism, and they look for it, and they find it in Karlobach, in Breslov, elsewhere, and today we may, we may need to go back and emphasize the discipline. Maybe people don't understand the importance of the discipline of Judaism, and so we might have to, we might have to learn the rub, not the way the rub learned the rub, but the rub learned the rub 50 years ago. And so we, learning the rub, either 50 years later, or on a different continent in Israel, or wherever we may be, or in Italy, or in, I'll just mention that uh, I was in correspondence with someone who's translating, who's finishing a translation of The Lonely Man of Faith into Czech. So if, if anyone here has been working on a Czech translation of The Lonely Man of Faith, you should stop, because it's been done. Um, and uh, also, there's a French translation of various of his works going on, so... Um, uh, another aspect where we might have to emphasize the other side of the dialectic than the Rav did is the issue of Chok Mishpat. Uh, mishpat, the use of reason uh, versus Chok, accepting that which we can't understand. And as I said, in, in the mid-50s when the Rav was speaking, when, when, when man was landing on the moon and uh, reason was was uh, people needed to understand, and the Rav emphasized that there are limits to the human intellect. And that there are things we can't understand them, that we can't use the intellect to legislate moral norms, and that, the, and that there are limits to what we can understand. However, it could be, I'm not saying that it is or it isn't, but we have to think, today is that the case? Or today, uh, do religious people assume that there's no role for reason in Judaism and in religion? And that today, uh, we, we shouldn't uh, utilize our judgment, our intellect, our independent thought, and that we just have to accept everything is for you. I think that there is a danger that people are accepting all sorts of superstitions and all sorts of, because they say, you know, it's not my place to think. The Gitar did the thinking for me, and I don't need to think. Uh, so, to, so today, instead of emphasizing the Chok, we may need to emphasize the Mishpat, uh, that we should recognize the danger of uncritical thought, and we should realize the power of the intellect, and to give it its proper place. It has its limits, but it also has its proper place. Um, so, uh, to conclude, the, the Rav wanted his students, his readers, not to passively accept what he said. He wanted them to work hard. He, uh, as we said, the writings are hard because he wanted you to put effort into it. It shouldn't be so easy to understand. Uh, he wanted you to, to work hard, but he also wanted you to read critically and to seek that which resonates for you and to apply it in a way that's appropriate for you and for your time and for your place and only in this way can each individual realize his own individual task and mission in the world by reading it critically and thinking if it's appropriate for his time. And if, if any readers of the Rub will, uh, will read my book and will then uh, not say, the Rub believed X, therefore I believe X, but they'll say, this resonates with me and this is meaningful and this will help me attain my mission in life, then that will be my reward.
again to Rabbi Ziegler of Yeshikoa. Thank you so much for our panelists. Thank you for coming. Have a good afternoon.